Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. The term CAFO stands for Concentrated Animal Feeding Operations. They're typically large farming operations where livestock are kept and fed within a confined space. As CAFOs steadily increase in number, so do the environmental and public health concerns associated with them. I'm Sarah Whitmire, one of the co-hosts of Noon Edition. Bob Salzberg is out today, but Becca Costello is joining us. And today, our panelists will discuss the impacts of concentrated animal feeding operations. You can follow the conversation on Twitter at Noon Edition or join us on air by calling in at 812-855-0811. You can also email in questions. That's news at Indiana Public Media. Org. Our guest today in studio, we have Paul Ebner. He's an associate professor of animal sciences at Purdue. Thank you, Paul, for being Thank here. Thank you for having me. And we have Kim Ferraro. She joins us on the phone. She is a senior staff attorney and agricultural policy director for the Hoosier Environmental Council. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us. So, um, Paul, let's just go ahead and start with you, and you can explain just how you do define a CAFO. Okay, that's a good question. So, um, CAFOs are, or CFOs really, which is confined feeding operation. Um, it's a type of livestock operation, and it's really defined by the numbers and the, the structures that you use to house the animals. So in Indiana, um, this falls under the confined feeding program. So a, a confined feeding operation, by definition, is a livestock facility that has a certain number of animals, and those animals are kept in some sort of confinement, whether it's indoors or, say, it's a, a feedlot, it's penned inside. So it the numbers depend on the species. So if it's pigs, it's 300 pigs. If it's uh, cows, beef cows or dairy cows, it's 600. Um, if it's chickens, like meat chickens, it may be 30,000. Okay. Okay. And are there, other, so you said CFO, are there other terms? Yes. I, yeah, there so are other not, terms. So, I, I don't hear CFO is regularly used. Well, we, we, it's, we're not trying to trick anyone. We use CFO because it's, um, CFO is the broad term for these types of farms, the confined feeding operations. Now, under that umbrella, you have a CAFO. A CAFO is a concentrated animal feeding operation. So that falls under the umbrella of CFO, but the numbers of animals in those types of farms are much higher. How high are those? Um, it, I've, I've got the definition if you guys want it okay. as far as numbers. Yeah, so for a CFO in Indiana, it's 300 cattle, 600 swine or sheep, 30,000 poultry, or 500 horses. So that's the threshold number. Then a CAFO is 700 mature dairy cows, 1,000 veal calves, 1,000 cattle, 2,500 swine of 55 pounds or more, 10,000 swine if they're less than 55 uh, pounds, 125,000 chickens um, other than laying hens, and 82,000 laying hens. Yeah, thanks. I mixed up. Cattle and cattle and swine <laughs> numbers. Yeah. I, I've heard the term factory farms used. Is that sort of a slang term? Uh, I would say it's a slang term. Um, the, those terms, CFO, CAFO, um, if I'm not mistaken, they're originally EPA terms because those regulations originally start at, at the national level. And then in Indiana, um, these, these types of farms are permitted um, through the Indiana Department of Environmental Management who interprets and administers those regulations. So... Um, Probably people will back, you know, depending on what side you're on, um, people would not like factory farms. Other people use it. So it, 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 but that is a slang term, yeah. So I wonder, I think <clears throat> one of the reasons why it's it's possible to even have that large number of animals in one place, it is true that it is somewhat industrialized. Is that fair to say that, you know, they've sort of automated some of the care that goes into taking care of the animals, and that's what enables them to have, you know, 125,000 chickens in one Yeah, area? I would think that's fair to say. Okay. Yeah. 
Kim, I, I want to get you involved in the conversation here because I know your organization has a lot of has has concerns about these CFOs. And can you talk about just some of the issues from from your perspective? Sure. Well, I'm going off off of your question about the term factory farm. I mean, it it, it actually is a a term that very well describes um, what these facilities are. And um, so our concern sort of stems from the industrialized nature of these facilities, even though they're being regulated um, or often referred to as farms. And they are not really farms in the traditional sense, as most people think of, you know, cows roaming in pasture. So when you concentrate this many animals in one place, those animals defecate. And, I mean, not to be gross, but, you know, defecate meaning urine and feces and all sorts of other waste that go along with um, raising animals. So you put 125,000 chickens or, you know, 1,500 cattle in one place, they're producing significant amounts of waste that has to be stored and disposed of somewhere. And so the concerns that we have stem from that. Um, and they range from water quality concerns to air quality concerns to quality of life for people who have to um, live next to one of these facilities that produce um, very dangerous air emissions, including ammonia and hydrogen sulfide, not to mention noxious odors. Um, there is economic development concerns, property value loss concerns. Who, I mean, I'm, I'm sure we're going to get into all of that, but. Um, all of these arise from the, the issue of confining that many animals in one location and collecting their waste in one location. What do the rules say about how manure and waste has to be handled and what, what happens? To all okay, this? so um, back up a little bit. Um, the, Kim's right that the, the face of agriculture has changed over time, and you've seen you know these farms get more concentrated. You've seen... Um, uh, farms with higher numbers of animals. Um, in terms of how that's regulated, uh, at the state level, it's regulated through IDEM. So IDEM is the Indiana Department of Environmental Management, and and they define regulations as to um, how the manure is stored, um, how it's uh, how it's um, um, used, and. But that's only one aspect. That the, the now in the past three years, the office of the Indiana State Chemist has had a manure rule where they have some jurisdiction over how that's applied. So most of those regulations deal are dealing with setbacks. So you can't apply manure within this this many feet of this type of use or this um, right of way things like that. Um, in IDEM, they also have. Um, you, to get that permit, you have to have a pretty detailed manure, manure or nutrient management plan, which is a manure management plan, and how you're going to deal with that. Um, then you get to the county level, and the county is a little bit different. In Indiana, counties have the option of having planning and zoning. So we have about 81 counties that have planning and zoning. Um, in that zoning ordinance, we have about 64 counties that have provisions for where that CFO can go. So it's, it's called CFO siting. So they may have um, more uh, different types of provisions or restrictions. They might say, you know, you need a buffer um, of 1,000 feet um, away from a religious institution or some, some other use. And that's basically what, what zoning is for. You know, you have two uses that... Um, might be acceptable, but they're not that compatible right next to each other. So mm -hmm. you you put in buffers and things like that. So that's why in some counties we see a lot of these, and other county other counties we don't. The last time the last time I looked at this, I felt like here locally, Bartholomew County has a lot. In Monroe County, I, I think at that time didn't have any. I don't think Monroe County has any. As as a, when we did this study in 2015 or started it, we didn't. I don't think there's any active permit in Monroe County. I could be wrong about that, but there's there's other factors that go into um, um, why you why some counties have more than others. So it's not just the zoning ordinance. Some of it's the zoning ordinance, but when we when we look across all these different counties. Um, there's, there's a lot of disparity in the zoning ordinances, and um, some counties, uh, 
there's other factors that go into it, like Brown County. You know, Brown County doesn't have any. Maybe I think they have one. Okay. Carroll County has 92. Oh my, um, okay. So uh, there's other demographics, what land is available, um, what's uh, kind of the tradition in that county as well. So there's a lot of factors that go into it besides the zoning ordinance. Okay. You mentioned IDEM, and I do want to, to let our audience know that we did invite the Indiana Department of Environmental Management to be on the program, but unfortunately they, they were not able to participate today. You can join the conversation today by calling 812-855-0811, or you can tweet at us at Noon Edition as we talk today about CAFOs and confined feeding operations. So I want to bring up what lawmakers, uh, their part in this conversation. Sure. Um, over the summer, there was a legislative study committee where they heard lots of public testimony and, and made some recommendations uh, to, as to what lawmakers starting in January are going to do. And Kim, I know you actually testified at that summer study committee. Um, so can you guys just give us a sort of rundown of what lawmakers are trying uh, to, are they likely to make it stricter uh, when they come back to the state house in January? Well, let me let me Go jump ahead. in for a minute and just um, I'd like to add something to what Paul was talking about with respect to um, IDEM regulation or sort of the landscape of regulation of CAFOs, and I think then that'll make a nice segue into the study committee and what they're looking at. Um, Paul is correct that IDEM has um, basically the primary regulatory authority for regulating CAFOs, um, but those rules are are specifically focused on manure management and storage. So the set and the setbacks um, or land application requirements are based on um, phosphorus as opposed to pathogens and E. coli. So the setbacks are only to protect waterways from nutrients, not from E. coli and pathogens that we know exist in animal waste. Um, and to give you uh, um, you know some specifics about what those setbacks are and how inadequate they are. The IDEM rule um, allows manure storage structures, which can be these huge earthen football field-sized lagoons, um, to be built in karst terrain and in floodplains. They can be 100 feet from on-site water wells and property lines. CAFOs can be 300 feet, and their uh, manure structures, 300 feet from surface waters, drainage inlets, sinkholes, and off-site water wells, and just 400 feet from adjacent homes and buildings. And when I say 400 feet from adjacent homes and buildings, I'm not talking about from the property line. The setback is from structure to structure. So if you have a house and your house is 300 feet from your property line, you're essentially giving an easement to that CAFO to use that 300 feet. So CAFOs at the state level can be built very, very close to where people live, very, very close to, to our waterways, which is hugely concerning to folks who um, oftentimes get a notice in the mail that a CAFO, you know, with 8,000 hogs is proposed to be built near them, and they get, you know, less than 30 days to try to figure out what's going on, then they contact their county and find out that the county, in some cases, uh, you know, doesn't really do much either, and typically says, well, that's IDEM's job, go to IDEM, and IDEM will tell them, hey, that's, you know, location of a CAFO is, uh, is a local job. So, you know, there's, there's a whole... Um, for citizens who, who are in these situations, they, they often find that there's really no one there to help. And um, so getting back to your question about the study committee, last year there was a bill um, that was proposed in the House. It was House Bill 1494 that um, was, had it passed, would have even made it more difficult for citizens to get the proper notice that they need. It would have limited in some ways items uh, regulation of CAFOs to just the manure storage structures as opposed to the facilities themselves. And there was a huge public outcry over that because, um, you know, many folks, including uh, organizations like ours, think that we need to be helping IDEM uh, do a better job of regulating CAFOs, giving IDEM more authority to protect waterways and, and people not, not going backwards. And so that study committee was um, put together to take a look at what we might be able to do uh, in that regard as well as understanding what counties are doing. Well, I think the the results of the study committee were really interesting, and it goes a little bit farther back to um, concerns that there's this um, so much confusion across 
counties. There's so many differences. It's not really confusing. It's just differences in how these these farms are are sited at the county level, and that's where Purdue came in, or was asked to come in to um, to look at those zoning ordinances across all of the uh, counties. And what we found is what you would expect that there's a, there are a lot of differences. You know, there's a, a county can be adjacent to a county that has um, uh, very similar demographics, but it has a very different zoning ordinance. Um, and one of the big things that came out of that study committee in the end was that, you know, local communities have um, the best uh, kind of background to, to decide where these farms should locate, which was a, a, a big, um, I think it was a big finding. So I think this is a good place to to insert these questions here. We got a couple questions via email. What role do you see for the local, state, and or federal officials in the rural CAFO debate? Um, and this person is asking if you can both respond. You can go ahead first, Kim, if you want. Okay, sure. Well, <clears throat> so right now what we see is that the um, item regulation is inadequate to protect waterways and people as a baseline. And certainly, as Paul points out, there's, you know, all you know, the counties all do things differently. So what, what is happening is there's sort of a race to the bottom where counties with the weakest um, requirements for CAFOs have the most CAFOs in them, which is predictable. And so what we need to have happen is uh, protections across the board, at least minimum protections that protect everyone in Indiana, regardless of where they, they live, in all of our waterways, regardless of what a county is doing. Um, so that's number one. With respect to what uh, counties can do specifically, they can go, we, we're a home rule state, they can go beyond what uh, IDEM requires, and, and some of them certainly do that. Um, they can impose um, odor standards, they can uh, impose air pollution limits, which is really critical given that federal and state regulation do not in any way uh, regulate or limit air emissions from CAFOs. Um, so counties can do a lot, but uh, in, my, in my view, it's really imperative that we get standardized state regulation that um, at least has a protective baseline for everyone. But we're kind of talking about two different things. A county, um, through planning and zoning, is, is, is basically the community coming together and saying, this is what we want to preserve, this is the way we want to go. Um, and and, they, and they're, like Kim said, it's a home rule state, and they're, it's perfectly their right to do so. And um, to get involved with plan commissions or, or comprehensive planning and zoning and things like that, I would respectfully disagree that it's a race to the bottom. Um, we have, uh, one of the things that we did is we looked at all these different factors that, that um, impact could impact siting across counties and one of the factors we looked at was kind of the process of of being cited in a county you know whether it's just a permitted use all the way to whether it's you need a special exception exemption and it's not always the case that the 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 counties that have by some metrics more restrictive ordinances have less farms. It certainly is the case in some some counties, but it's not across the board. So what role do you see then for for governments in the debate? Well, one of the other things that came out of the study commission was to um, give uh, to fund basically IDEM a little bit more. There's a lot of talk about inspecting farms and and how often these farms uh, get inspected. And IDEM's um, was saying it's it's a five year, and it's not mm -hmm. always the case. So, um, meaning but, it sometimes is farther apart. Yeah. Okay. So and and of course you know a lot of things that limit the ability to go out and inspect the funding. So there was talk of saying increasing permits to to perhaps offset so there could be more or better inspections things like that. So do you when when you hear this question what do you what do you think about what other states are doing that maybe Indiana as a state could look at? That something that you saw that you think works particularly well, or? <laughs> well, I can speak best from from the county level, and that was one of the okay. things that we wanted to do. We wanted to see, you know, we have all these data, and we have all these uh, different types of provisions and standards, and we really wanted to see, well, what works, you know, it, from a land use aspect, you know, what reduces conflict, what, um, and this 
just from a land use aspect, not impact of, of environment or anything like that. Um, and we haven't been able to tease that out. You know, there's ex examples of um, people are proposing things like site scoring systems, which are interesting. That's a, a system where um, a farm to be able to be cited has to come up with a certain number of points. So they get points for um, a tree barrier that blocks odor. Um. They get points for maybe a letter from their neighbor saying that they're on board with this. So they have to get a certain number of points before they can get cited. So we have we have five counties in Indiana that that have that. We haven't been able to tease out whether that's effective. Like we really want to know what's effective in reducing land use conflict. Um, maybe what's excessive because we want you know we want people to be able to you know live together. And you know there's people on both sides with a lot of emotions. They come to their values honestly, and uh, we just want to see kind of tease out what might work. Another emailed question, do you think voluntary adoption of mitigation measures for air and water pollution will work, and why or why not? How about we start with you, Kim? Okay. Well, let me just address one, one point before we um, leave the last topic before I answer that question. Um, we were talking about, I made the mention of a race to the bottom in the counties um, because, you know, based on... Um, the level of their strict, of their stringency, for lack of a better word, with respect to um, regulation of CAFOs. And what we see is that in the top 10 counties, um, which include Carroll, Davies, Decatur, Dubois, Jay, Kosciuszko, Wash, uh, Wabash, and White counties, all have uh, in excess of 75 CAFOs, some more than 100. And in each of those counties, all that's required is an improvement location permit that doesn't really have um, any sort of a process like a special exception process um, that gives impacted landowners due process rights where they can come in and uh, you know provide evidence to the county that hey this particular CAFO is going to negatively impact my property values or negatively impact my quality of life and so what we see is in those counties where the process is like a rubber stamp that is in fact where we see the most um, CAFOs um, anecdotally, just based on my work in communities as an attorney, I can tell you that the counties that have um, some sort of a due process requirement, whether it be requiring a special exception or variance um, or a site development plan that allows for participation by impacted landowners, that in those counties we at least see uh, less conflict because um, impacted land landowners feel like they're having a say. Um, Going to the question that you posed to me about voluntary measures, I think we can, all we need to do is look at um, non-point source pollution from agriculture, which is largely uh, based on voluntary measures and see that that is not working given the fact that we've got um, excess nutrient pollution as a really critical problem facing not only Indiana, um, but in the United States um, in general because of our failure to be able to, to control nutrient runoff from fields. Um, also, we know that these factory farms produce incredible amounts of harmful air emissions that are not regulated. There are technologies out there that could limit and control those emissions, but because they're not mandatory, they're not being widely used. Um, the, the odor issue is, is interesting because if, and again, I'm talking from a land use aspect. Obviously, the solution is distance. You know, distance solves a lot of problems. So the the argument is that how much distance is sufficient and how much is over like, burdensome. Um, but there's there's very few there's there's very little data that can that tells you that this distance is proper or not, mm -hmm. except for odor. You can there are plenty of models available that can tell you. Um, given the species of animal, given the type of manure, if it's wet or dry, um, given whether you have a tree barrier, the topography, the taking in wind and weather data in that location, can predict you know the the odor events that that this use at this distance will have. So those are really good. There's there, I mean there's there's some pro challenges with it because it makes uh, setbacks. Um, 
kind of ugly because it's maybe it's a uh, 500 feet on one side and a thousand feet on the other side where if you look at buffers in zoning ordinances even buffer the setbacks for item they're all pretty standardized it's 500 feet you know it doesn't matter if you're upwind or downwind so there are tools available for one of the one of the biggest um uh concerns of neighbors is is odor and there are tools available for that we do have to take a quick break. Our panel is talking about concentrated feeding operations, or we're talking about CAFOs. Uh, you can submit your questions or comments. You can call in at 812-855-0811 or email news at indianapublicmedia.org. We'll be right back. From the Milton Metz studio at IU's Radio TV building, this is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state throughout the day at WFIUNews.org and on Twitter at WFIUNews. You can watch unfiltered video of breaking stories on Facebook Live. And you can get a digest of all the day's top stories delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of the headlines, plus the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't find anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Sarah Whitmire, co-hosting today with Becca Costello. On this week's show, we're discussing Indiana's livestock industry and CAFOs. Our guests today are Paul Ebner. He's an associate professor of animal sciences at Purdue. And Kim Ferraro is senior staff attorney and agricultural policy director with the Hoosier Environmental Council. You can join the conversation at 812-855-0811 or on Twitter at Noon Edition. I want to get to an email question we got here. Um, it starts with a little bit of an explainer, so let me read this and then have the question. Um, she said, I, the woman's name is Jennifer, and she says, there are many complaints against the CAFO model of livestock production. It seems the two most significant are related to air pollution and water quality and quantity issues, manure runoff during transport and field application, as well as leakage from pits or lagoons, and the pooling of massive amounts of water from rural aquifers to watering of the animals in CAFOs, and the cleaning of the facilities and equipment. Um, she says she suspects what drives the de- that dr- she suspects that drives a decrease in property values for neighbors. So the question is for you, Paul. She sure. is saying, what incentives, carrots or sticks or other motivations exist or are in the planning to ensure that measures to address these issues are actually being implemented by CAFO operators? So maybe you can answer the question, but then also sort of respond to that paragraph, too, because I think there's some assumptions in there. Um, yeah, there's there are some assumptions in there. And, it's, and I'll bring up our, our CFO ordinance study again. Um, just to, one of the things that we you could tease out was different communities have different concerns. Maybe it's water use. And they have... Um, they might address that in their zoning ordinance. So that was one of the things that we picked out. And it's, you know, the ordinances are different, but maybe they should be different because counties are different. They have different goals. They have different um, demographics. In terms of incentives, um, they, I think it's important to, to realize that the, the producers are, are um, people just like everyone else, and they're wanting to do a, a good job. You know, there's bad actors, of course. There's bad actors in every industry. Um, so they they and they they do want to do a good job. Um, there's always new technologies coming forward, especially in the area of odor um, and and manure management, because what it comes down to is is not in every case, but what a lot of the concerns come down to are manure. So um, schools across the nation are, are trying different things, trying adding things to, to pits, you know, so you get different microbial communities that don't produce as much 
the same odors, um, biofilters, uh, anaerobic digesters, which which were spoken about in um, in during testimony in the an interim study committee. Um, so I think there's there's people take it very seriously. You know, the people on on both sides take it very seriously. And they recognize that you know these are these are challenges, they're problems, and these are concerns. And so there's there's I think there's considerable investment in research, at least into how you can kind of alleviate some of these problems. But I think maybe getting back to that question a little bit as far as incentives, carrots or sticks. So you know, item has these regulations. It sounds sure. like they uh, intend at least to do inspections every five years. If these farms are not meeting the expectations, are not following those regulations, what are the consequences for that? Sure, and that's that's a good question. And and the you also have the Office of the Indiana State Chemists, and they're both complaint-driven processes. So while IDEM may not be out at the farm, if they do get a plaint, complaint, and then they're required to address that complaint. And the same thing with the the state chemists. So. Um, you can look and and see kind of follow those cases. They're all public record, so you can see them on both both agencies have uh, sites or, or databases that show what happens um, when when you get um, when there's investigation, when there's a violation, what type of citations they get, and down to the amount of money that that they're cited for. Kim, maybe you can address that question as well and talk about, you know, as, as someone who's not really in the policy and, and government-making world, um, what are what are some of the things that you as an environmental organization, are you working with farmers to say, you know, you don't legally have to follow these regulations, but it's better for you and better for your community if you do? Well, okay, so as an attorney, I can tell you that I am involved in policy. Oh, I apologize. <laughs> is, is involved in policy, but... Um, those conversations are happening. They've been happening for a long time, um, you know, not only with our organization, but um, you know, all over the United States. I mean, this is not a brand-new problem. The um, transformation of livestock agriculture over the last three decades has generated this concern. And so going back to a, a point that Paul raised about um, tremendous research and technologies and, um, you know, other methods that are out there that could be brought to bear to um, address these concerns. Yes, they exist, and yes, those things have been ongoing for a long time. To give you a, a, a concrete example, back in 2005, the US EPA um, and the livestock industry uh, entered into a consent decree. It was to resolve um, potential Clean Air Act violations across the industry. And the industry back then funded um, the National Air Emissions Monitoring Study, of which Purdue, I'm sure Dr. Eber knows very well, was, um, was an integral part of this study. And it is part of that consent decree. The livestock industry agreed that the results of that study would be used to um, be a baseline for developing um, air emission standards for CAFOs and that they wouldn't fight that. So the, the study ended, uh, I believe it was in 2007 or 2009, don't quote me on that. Um, yet today, we still do not have air emission standards for CAFOs. The, the industry argues, well, there, there's too many questions about the data. Um, many other scientists say, no, there really isn't. It's pretty straightforward. But this is sort of the same playbook that we see, you know, with respect to climate change or, or you know, I would call it the, the tobacco industry playbook. Let's create confusion over the science so that we don't ever have to get regulated. And with respect to air emissions, I mean, I think that's, that's a very good example of that. Um, we know that these emissions are out there. We know that the emissions are harming people. There are technologies to address it, but because we don't have regulations that require CAFOs to implement them, they're just not doing it. Do you have a response, Paul? Um, well, I clear up uh, that I'm not Dr. Heber, so I'm sorry, Hebner. <laughs> no, he, there's Heber. There's Heber and Ebner. So Heber, yes. Dr. Heber is he's a great resource, and he's a great resource for um, livestock producers as well. He's the one that came up with the Purdue odor model, right. and and can can give you a really good prediction of of what this neighbor is going to experience if this farm is in this location based on how many animals. Um, 
I think uh, I don't really have a, a, any response or any sort of rebuttal for for Kim. Um, it is a it I, in terms of the emissions, it is it is tricky as as industries change and there's differences across species and there's diff- different production um, methods. Um, but I, I don't have any clear rebuttal. I mean, Paul, maybe you can explain what are in these emissions. Is this is this actually dangerous if I have a home near there to, for me sure. to be breathing? Or yeah. So one of the things that we did at Purdue as well is we 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 try and look at what are the citizens' concerns or what come up most often. We also poll um, plan commission members and extension educators to see what um, what type of information they need. And one of the big ones is. The, the impact of emissions on on neighbors. So, we've we we try and when we when we do these projects, we try and collect all the the relevant research on a topic and do a review of the literature. So, and, and kind of these are more controversial topics, and we try and say you know where the science is right now, um, and then they're peer reviewed and they're released. So, um, we've looked at. The impact of odor mostly. So it, that's not that's the smell. You know, it's not what's actually. Well, there's something in it that's making it smell, but there, it's really odor. So people have reactions to odor. They're physiological reactions. The example would be if you have ever been in biology class and you go to dissect a frog and someone faints. You know, because when it opens up, that's a physiological reaction. So people can have physiological reactions to odor. It's mostly tension, things like that. And they're, depending on the um, type of facility and the number of animals, there are, there are a handful of studies that look at the um, other emissions and, and what that does to like pulmonary health in communities around. So it's, that's understudied, but there, there can be an impact. Hmm. And, and, and it, if you look in the aggregate of all these studies, it's uh, sometimes there's obviously there's no impact, but sometimes there is an impact. Um, and again, it gets back to distance. And you know what we'd really like to know is what is the type of distance that minimizes that. So, and we don't. Those are the data that we don't have. Okay. Can I can I jump in on that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, great. So the the air emission study that I mentioned before that Purdue um, participated in. They looked at CAFOs across the United States. Several of them were in Indiana. And so at a dairy CAFO, a specific Indiana dairy CAFO that was involved in the study, they found that um, ammonia emissions were released at a rate of between 18 and 75 grams per day per cow. In other words, um, an average-sized dairy CAFO with 1,400 cows will emit as much as 200 pounds of ammonia into the air every day which is above the Clean Air Act threshold for regulation. Um, According to the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, um, ammonia is a noxious gas that poses serious health risks. It has an acrid, repellent odor at levels above 0.7 parts per million, so not very much will have an adverse effect on people. It causes eye irritation beginning at 4 parts per million and irritation of the nose and throat above 25 parts per million. It can also trigger asthma attacks in some asthmatics. Studies um, that have looked at children um, in schools that are within a half mile um, versus 10 miles away from a CAFO found that the children at the close school um, had significantly increased asthma symptoms than children who, who don't. So these are very, this is more than just odor. This is a public health threat. Um, from these air emissions. And again, that's just ammonia. That doesn't include hydrogen sulfide or particulate matter. It, again, gets back to that issue of distance. Yeah, and one of the things we're, we're interested in is everyone knows that, that those emissions are, are there. You know, it, it, it's part of manure. But, and I'm not disagreeing with you, Kim. I'm just yeah. I'm saying that what, one of the things that, that Al Heber has also looked at is like the levels at these different um, sure. uses around it. But but I guess where we disagree is I think it's not just distance, because then what the industry says is, well, look, then you're going to prohibit us from being able to operate because, you know, there are already these existing homes and we can't meet these um, distances. I mean, there are studies that show that these odor plumes and air emissions can travel up to three miles. So what really has to happen is that there are technologies out there that can limit these emissions. 
And sometimes CAFOs just shouldn't be able to be built in certain areas. There has to be limits that don't exist. So I that's think, where I'm coming from. I think most people would agree with you in, yeah. on both sides, and that's where um, and that's where the county can come in. You know, and they can the county can say though you know this is the the direction of development we want to go, um, and they can they can make those choices. But well, obviously, there's there's places where a CFO should not locate. You know, not to, not to be a cynic or too argumentative, I sure. feel like I am being. But you know, the 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 farm lobby, the agricultural lobby, is pretty darn powerful in Indiana, um, as it is at the federal level. And there are Farm Bureau representatives and other lobbyists that sit on the plan commissions of all 92 counties um, that are not all 92, because not all counties have plan commissions, but in the vast majority there are. So, you know, there's some influence happening here that is preventing um, even the counties from, from in some instances, uh, doing what they need to do to protect their citizens. I will add that sometimes um, the biggest proponents or opponents of a CFO can be a neighboring farmer. So it's not. And we heard a so, lot of that in the legislative study committee, yeah. I think, over the summer. So it's not necessarily right. that that um, someone is a member of Farm Bureau or, or they're a, a past hog producer even that, that they're on board. So Absolutely. And I would distinguish, though, between... Um, an independent family small farmer versus a CAFO owner. I, I have never been involved in a community conflict where another CAFO owner came in and was opposed to another CAFO coming in, Eight unless one. it was a threat to their own animals. 812-855-0811. If you want to join today's conversation, we're talking about confined animal feeding operations. Here on Noon Edition, you can always tweet your, tweet your questions at Noon Edition. Um, before we move on from regulation, I, I want to bring up the animal welfare question. I think mm -hmm. maybe the public um, who, who doesn't know a lot about CAFOs may sort of have seen these videos on Facebook of what they would describe as factory farms. What are the animal welfare concerns and are there um, regulations in Indiana specific to how the animals are treated? Those regulations would come under the Board of Animal Health. That's a state agency. They come up with standards regarding that. Um, treatment and care of animals, um, and also uh, how diseases are managed. So if there's, mm -hmm. especially if there's a, a big disease outbreak like um, avian flu, they have um, uh, reaction plans for that. Um, the, there's not, I, I think it's important to look at how the different kinds of uh, management systems for these farms. So some farms you might have uh, um, uh, all the chickens they're meat chickens. They're all on a floor. They're not caged. Um, egg layers are generally caged, but some industries or some businesses are moving towards a cage-free system um, where the birds have more more um, opportunity to do natural behaviors. They nest, they um, clean and bathe, things like that. Um, as chickens bathe, mm -hmm. not like us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then in, in pork production, um, there's there's always been a, a contention about the way that sows are raised. So it's there's in what they would call uh, individual gestation units or gestation crates, which is the colloquial term. So um, those still exist, but you also see the in different industries moving towards group housing systems. So all of those systems kind of developed for a reason. I mean, there's reasonings behind it, and you can debate whether... Um, you know, one was right or one was wrong or whether this was a really good reason. But in most cases, it came down to, I can use the example of sows. You know, sows started, people started using these systems because um, sows uh, sometimes fight each other and mm -hmm. it can mm -hmm. impact the number of uh, pigs that are born. Um, it can impact the health of the, the sow. Um, and it, when it's in that individual unit, you have obviously you have really good control over the environment in terms of nutrition. So, uh, but on the other hand, that limits a lot of behaviors and, of of the sow, and um, and there can be ramifications. The, the animals can have what are called stereotypies, um, which are kind of repetitive behaviors. Um, so, a lot of uh, 
of and a lot of producers, big producers, are moving towards the group housing system and working to see how they can still like put all these sows together, not have them fight as much, <laughs> and also have them, uh, which is a natural thing that the pigs do, and also have adequate nutrition and things like that. So, I'm sh- I'm sure, Kim, you you would like to weigh in. Well, I mean, I think um, that Paul described the, the situation pretty well. And, you know, folks who care about animal welfare um, obviously care about cramming that many animals all close together. I mean, they're, uh, in, in addition to um, it being unnatural and they're not able to do their normal animal behaviors, um, you know, disease is a, is a problem in putting that many animals next to one another. And for that reason, we also have... Um, antibiotic-resistant disease concerns that arise out of our um, prophylactic use of antibiotics to ward off disease with animals that are being raised in these confined conditions. Um, and you know, the CDC recently confirmed that um, 80% of all antibiotics in the U.S. are being given prophylactically to non-disease livestock and that this is contributing to the rise of MRSA, um, which is now taking more lives every year than, than HIV-AIDS. Um, so you know, animal welfare concerns are, um, they're, they're real and they're beyond just animal welfare concerns. It's also public, another public health aspect of this. So this is sort of my wheelhouse, so I'm going to come in. So um, there are different diseases to when you have the animals confined in a space. So there are um, different disease management strategies because you have different, different viruses and bacteria live in that environment. At the same time, one of the reasons why animals moved indoors or were moved indoors was uh, to limit other types of diseases. So we don't have some diseases that were big before, like hog lice or trichinosis. Um, in terms of the antibiotic resistance and antibiotic use, that's one that um, it comes up all the time. And rightfully so, antibiotic resistance in general is a very big problem. Um, what's happened in the what might be interesting to your listeners is what happened in the last few years is is one of the probably the biggest shift in antibiotic use policy in terms of animal agriculture since I've been in the game, and that's where the FDA basically um, worked with. They made a rule that um, a, um, antibiotic companies will no longer market antibiotics for growth promotion. So you have some antibiotics. Every antibiotic has an indication. You know, you can use it for this or you can use it for that. So um, there, there are a handful of antibiotics that, that had an indication that said for improved feed efficiency or growth promotion. So um, FDA also has a list of what they call medically important antibiotics. So any antibiotic, they're really families of antibiotics, so it's not necessarily specific. It's maybe penicillins. So... Um, their their new rule or their new policy is that those antibiotics can't be used for um, for growth promotion. They can't be used in the feed for growth promotion. So there's also the other two uses in 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 livestock production. One one Kim uh, addressed is the prophylactic use. So there are times you know when you know that. A disease is probably or, or, or very likely to be present, um, maybe at the animal, like weaning. Weaning is can be very stressful. It can be a time where pigs get diarrhea or other types of um, enteric problems. Um, so in some cases, yeah, the the drugs will be used that way, and and maybe even metaphylactically, which means treating the entire herd so that disease is not able to establish itself. So um, that's, that's not really touched by this new FDA policy. Mm-hmm. It's really focused on um, growth-promoting horm- or, um, antibiotics. And then there's also the to treat a specific disease. And I think everyone's on board that you should use antibiotics to treat a specific disease. I mean, that's an animal welfare issue in itself, is that you have this sick animal and it has a problem that can be treated with, the, with antibiotics then it's not right to with, withhold the antibiotics. And even in, in the National Organic uh, Program, you know, if you have organic animals can't ever have antibiotic treatment. But if all else fails, you're supposed to treat that animal with an antibiotic. 
but just can't market it anymore as organic. So. Mm. Okay. So that's a it's a it's a that's a yeah, big issue. Yeah. Kim, we only have about a minute left here, but I want to give you the last word to talk about what you if you expect the legislature to take KFOs up again this session and what we might expect. Um, well, I believe the study committee has already uh, issued its final report, mm-hmm. and it, um, it 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 didn't go very far. Um, I I do expect that we will. Um, see some sort of legislation on this issue this session, whether it be um, a renewed effort uh, to what I'll say is weaken IDEM regulation, um, as we saw last year. And I know our our organization, Hoosier Environmental Council, will be um, pushing for more proactive legislation to help improve environmental policy um, in Indiana on this front. Well, Kim, thank you very much. And thank you, Paul, both of you for joining us today. Thank you. We appreciate you. you taking the time. Thank you to our producer, Angelo Bautista, co-host, Becca Costello, engineer, Mike Pashkash. I'm Sarah Whitmire. This has been Noon Edition. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu and Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.